Welcome to the show, everybody, and thank you. The reviews have been coming in on iTunes and Amazon for Psychonautics, a comics exploration of psychedelics. If you haven't had a chance to see it, rent or buy today on iTunes or Amazon. There's also, if you go to psychonauticsfilm.com, there's a myriad of other, like, you can check it out on PlayStation, Xbox, a bunch of other things like that. So you may have other options out there, especially if you are trying to watch interviews internationally and you know this is my first documentary i'm obviously very excited about it i lost my mind to make this film and had to (laughs) had to slowly come back to finish it and it was quite a journey all of it was well worth it but what would make it really special for me is if you guys can keep spreading the word help support write reviews it would be all all the reviews that we get all the watches everything like that that um bumps it up more it gets it recommended to more people the more people see it the more it elevates my it gets my name out there it it gets good psychedelic information and research out there it will allow me the opportunity to do similar things in the future and will get more people out to shows and everything else which helps this podcast as well it's all of a piece and so um please continue to support what i'm doing through that and if you still have a chance um to check out stand up science perhaps coming to your area and by the way i'm going to be i'm going to be we're working on summer dates to come back through some of the areas and as we do keep on expanding into new cities as well so if i came through the area and you missed me or if i came close to you but not quite there uh keep an eye on things um aiming to maybe July ish we're, we're still kind of putting it together but at the time that you're listening to this um, definitely uh, you have perhaps uh, Lexington Evansville and St. Louis if you're hearing this um, in a timely fashion but uh, definitely Denver and Boulder Colorado coming up Um gonna try to work on more Colorado dates the next spin around um, the area but uh, we've got Los Angeles coming up San Diego Seattle Portland adding more stuff all the time so uh, keep an eye on it the the stand-up science tour has been absolutely great and I'm still I'm still learning and getting better I'm learning what academics what uh, do best what subjects uh, do best and and just kind of fine-tuning the show um i've i've been uh shout out to my good friend dave Waite, who's absolutely hilarious he's been tagging along with me on a leg of the tour i thought as an experiment rather than looking up a new comic in each city i'd i get a comic friend of mine with me and it's just been tons of fun we've been riffing a bunch in the in the q a's and it's just makes that aspect of it a lot more fun and comfortable and everything else so check out dave wait w-a-i-t-e and yeah i hope you get to see it soon and enjoy today's episode are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are 
Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, we have a return guest, sort of, while he was on one of the live episodes, episode 111, magic number 111 with Kathleen Voss. It was, uh, let's see, February 3rd, 2017. So here we are two years later. Well, I don't know when this is going to come out, but for us in our time, two years later, close enough. We have professor of psychology at the University of Minnesota, Colin D. Young, is joining me today. Colin, thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me back on again. Yeah, I'm so happy that you all of a sudden, last minute, I had a few hours before because you're doing stand up science in Minneapolis tonight. And I happened to have a couple extra hours and I reached out to you. You happen to be free. We've had, uh, we've had incredible conversations together uh, off, off, uh, off the mic. And so I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for some time and it finally worked out. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. This is great. So, your main area of focus is talking about personality. We've talked about the big five before on the podcast, but you you go about kind of figuring out some of the neurobiological underpinnings of personality, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, the big five, you know, it's the model that most personality psychologists, most scientists who are studying personality are using at this point. But uh, there's this problem with it, which well, we is... We should actually probably go over the big five just yeah. for new listeners. That's and, a good yeah. good idea, right? So the idea behind the big five is that if we study people's personalities, there are literally thousands of different ways that you can describe people's personalities. You know, they can be talkative and lazy and clever and, you know, anything else you can think of. Uh, but one of the things that people are always interested in are what are the really important sort of major dimensions of personality, the ways in which people vary. Um, And one of the things that personality psychologists did over the last, I don't know, 50 to 100 years is that uh, they tried to tackle that from an empirical perspective. Uh, They tried to figure out not just based on people's intuitions and theories, but if you actually look at a lot of people, certain characteristics tend to appear together in different people, right? So the person who is more talkative, maybe we'll find out that they also tend to be more sociable and they also tend to experience more positive emotions uh, and they also tend to be more physically active. Um, And it turns out that we can group all those things together and identify that as like a broader characteristic that we describe as extroversion. I'm only laughing because I'm thinking of myself. I'm like, damn it, I am an introvert. I'm not terribly physically active and I'm not the most upbeat person in the entire world. So it's already making some nice (laughs) predictions. Well, on a podcast when I have to be talkative. Yeah. Well, you do it for a living, right? You talk for a living. Yeah, but it's like it's a very controlled thing. I get right. up there. It's like a specialized my, niche. And then yeah. off stage, I shut it down. Yeah. Well, we could talk about that too. There's this idea that uh, a psychologist named Brian Little uh, came up with this idea that people can occasionally engage what he described as free traits, hmm. like a pun on free trade, right? But the idea being that uh, you have these general tendencies. But sometimes because of certain circumstances or certain goals that you're trying to achieve, you can act 
out of character ah. in that particular circumstance, right? So uh, let's oh, say, yeah. you know, somebody who's an introvert generally uh, gets a job in sales or they get a job as a stand-up comic, sure. right? Uh, <laughs> they're going to have to learn how to act extroverted in that one particular context, right? right? So it's almost like they're, uh, they've got a sort of free trade in that particular context that's different from their general tendency. I'm an insanely messy person, low on conscientiousness, but I'm having to, with putting together stand-up science, you know, New City almost every night, three different guests on each show and reaching out to people, booking, figuring out who's on, who's who's written me back, everything else. I'm having to learn and be the most organized that I've ever been in my entire life. So in that very specific aspect, I'm, I'm becoming a very conscientious person. Right. And that's probably a little exhausting. It is. <laughs> it is. So one of the things that Brian points out is that kind of... Uh, what is called contra trait effort uh, is tiring, right? Mm, I like uh, that contra trait effort. Yeah. So if you have to act in such a way that is really counter to your natural tendencies, it tends to be hard work. Mm. There was a, there was a funny study that was done actually about this with extroversion, um, where they had people assigned uh, to act extroverted or to act introverted, um, and what they found was that. Okay, it was a bit difficult for the introverts to act extroverted and like to force themselves to talk more and to be more socially engaged and these kind of things. But what was really hard was for the extroverts to shut up. <laughs> you can't shut them up. Oh my right. god. That is yeah. that is because I I have a little bit of a beef with like the uh, people that are way far on the extrovert side sometimes drive me a little crazy. It's yeah, a little uh, bit of a personality. Careful, because I'm pretty high on extroversion. But, uh, <laughs> well, I like but, talking, but to not you. off the charts. So. Sure. <laughs> I'm thinking of like uh, the people at my CrossFit gym oh, God. that are just. <laughs> well, that's not extroversion. That's the, the problem. There is that they joined a cult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's maybe I just don't like cult-like behavior. <laughs> But that's hilarious that an inactivity, like not taking right. action, like right. shutting your the mouth. The inhibition taking... of like holding yourself back when wow. all you want to do is run your mouth can be even more tiring and difficult than forcing yourself to, you know, speak wow. up or actively engage in something. That is a foreign concept to me because a lot of small talk is very labored for me, but <laughs> right. it seems like for some people they just can't blah, blah, shut blah, blah, it. Blah, blah. Huh. Yeah. That's fascinating. Huh. Um, all right. So, so what are the five dimensions? Okay. So we've already mentioned two of them just in passing. So one of them is extroversion. And we've already given a pretty good summary about the kinds of things that that involves. Uh, you mentioned conscientiousness. And so that involves being organized and uh, hardworking and, uh, you know, we're just responsible in general versus on the <laughs> other end of things being unreliable and lazy and uh, impulsive yeah. and disorganized, right? Yeah, that's uh, me. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, then there is uh, neuroticism. Um, which That's is, always the one that I get the most confused by of all the traits. It seems like the, the the foggiest in my mind of like trying to picture what that what that looks like. Oh, in a that's person. that's interesting because in a lot of ways it's one of the easiest to picture. I think part of the problem is the label because that word neuroticism. I mean, you know, that dates back to Freud. It's got a lot of baggage. Mm -hmm. um, when modern personality psychologists talk about neuroticism and say somebody's neurotic. They don't mean the same thing that a Freudian psychoanalyst means. I see. Uh, it's not loaded with this, with ideas about like 
unconscious conflicts. And I mean, those things might be relevant to somebody who's neurotic in the modern sense, but it's really a simpler and broader term than that. All it means is the tendency to experience negative emotions of all different kinds. Oh, yeah. I guess I didn't realize that's all it is. Yep. Huh. And so some people change the label and call it negative emotionality just because that's a lot more straightforwardly what it means in the modern sense. Hmm. Um, And so basically the the idea behind neuroticism is that, unfortunately, people who experience one kind of negative emotion are typically prone to experiencing all the other kinds as well. So mm. if you're somebody who tends to be anxious, you're more likely to experience depression and mm. anger and irritability and just general sort of mood swings and emotional liability. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's unfair in a way. You, you get stuck with one of those, you're likely to be stuck with a whole bunch of them. I'm right, right in the middle. Uh, yeah, so am I, I actually. I, I'm average in, mm. in neuroticism, yeah. Um, but, right, so uh, you've got your negative emotions associated with neuroticism. You've got the kind of uh, activated, uh, high-level positive emotions like joy and excitement. Those are associated with extroversion. So there's a way in which extroversion and neuroticism are kind of complementary. Ah. Um, but they are separate traits. That's important, too, because you can have people who are uh, neurotic extroverts. Um, And actually, in my experience, those people are the people who are the most likely to be confused about their own personalities. So what what do you mean by that? Well, uh, I'll I'll give you an an anecdote. So I had a friend when I was in graduate school uh, who was, uh, well, she was a great cook for one thing. She lived downstairs for me, so I got to eat all kinds of delicious leftovers. Um, But uh, one day she said to me, uh, I just don't know if I'm a happy person or not. <laughs> and mm. I thought to myself, well, you know, that's because you're a neurotic extrovert. So she was one of these people. It was just like her life was an emotional roller coaster mm. because she was super extroverted. She loved people, was super talkative and had all these sort of positive emotions and would get really excited about things. And, oh, this is a great idea. Let's do this. Oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And then a minute later, She'd think of something and we'd be like, oh, my God, this isn't going to work. Oh, this is terrible. Oh, I'm so worried about this. It's not going to work. Right. So she would swing between these extremes of being really excited and having a lot of positive emotion, but then was also really susceptible to feeling like things were threatening or uncertain and then experiencing a lot of negative emotion. Hmm. Uh, So I think for people who have those kinds of, you know, intense swings, uh, it's hard to figure out sometimes, you know, like, what are they like in general? Because we think of those things as contradictory. But no. Uh, sorry to cut you. I was just going to say, as personality tendencies, you can have both. What if you're low? Uh, what, what if you're an introvert but uh, high in neuroticism? Is it? Uh, if you're an introvert and high in neuroticism, then um, you're likely to be a bit depressive. That's I, like the, oh, wait, the major. I, you you meant what if you're I, low I in low, both? Yeah, low in both. Yeah, so you're low extroversion but also low neuroticism. So then you're the kind of person who's just kind of quiet but solid, right? It's like. You're not worried. You're not, uh, you know, people might think that you're uh, inhibited or something, but you're not really. You're just not particularly motivated or engaged by things. You might be somebody who's like generally seen as very calm or somebody who's like a real, you know, rock to lean on because you're not out there like getting in trouble or getting involved in all kinds of crazy things. But you're Mm -hmm. also, it's not because you're worried about it. It's just because it doesn't, you're not that uh, motivated or, you know, just active in general. Hmm. I think that's my goal uh, is to be that. <laughs> How flexible are some yeah. of these traits? Well, that's a really good question. And that's one of the questions that I always get when, uh, you know, I tell people that I'm a personality psychologist. It's like, um, 
can I, oh, can I change my personality? <laughs> or sometimes it's, can I change my boyfriend's personality? <laughs> uh, but uh, they can change, right? Uh, this is what I always tell people is that uh, personality traits can change. Even in adulthood, they can change, but they're not likely to change dramatically. They're not likely to be easy to change. They're probably not going to change quickly unless somebody has some kind of really traumatic experience and suddenly becomes a lot more neurotic. And so, you know, if you have a goal of becoming less neurotic, you know, good luck. <laughs> it's going to be difficult. Uh, you know, maybe do some therapy. I mean, one of the interesting things about um, personality change, there was just a big study that was a meta-analysis, which means that it's aggregating basically across a whole lot of individual studies and doing a kind of quantitative assessment of across many different studies of the same thing. What kind of evidence do we have for um, some particular phenomenon? And uh, this study was basically looking at all the different studies that had assessed whether personality changes after different kinds of therapy. Um, and so it was looking at uh, it was looking at psychoanalysis. It was looking at treatment with pharmaceuticals uh, like antidepressants. Uh, it was looking at uh, standard kinds of like cognitive behavioral therapy, which is pretty much the most common type of uh, behavioral therapy that there is uh, today. And what they found was that uh, consistently across all different types of therapy, uh, there was personality change as a result of therapy. Um, and the largest amount of change was actually in reducing neuroticism. Hmm. Uh, the other personality traits tended to change a little bit, um, but the one that really showed uh, the most change was neuroticism, which makes a lot of sense, right? Because if you are in therapy, it's probably because you're suffering emotionally. Mm -hmm. um, and so the good news is that for, you know, for a reasonably large proportion of people, uh, undergoing therapy does tend to reduce their neuroticism. In other words, their general tendency to be, you know, you know miserable, experiencing negative emotions of various kinds. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like when I'm exercising regularly, I, I'm lower in neuroticism. Yeah, no, that's a really great point. And I have the exact same experience. If I don't get cardio exercise on a reasonably yeah. regular basis, I get irritable. Yeah. I get you know, just more kind of emotionally volatile, where I'm at dissatisfied. Now. Yeah. I've fallen out yeah, of it. Yeah, no, I just, I just got myself a treadmill at the beginning of this winter because, uh, you know, we're here in Minnesota. Winter this year decided it was going to start at the end of September. <laughs> Basically went below freezing in October. We just had winter since October. So uh, I wasn't getting outside to run as much as I like to. And I thought, I got to do something about this because I need, you know, I need my, uh, my cardiotherapy. Mm. Um, and so CrossFitters get to be both fit and in a cult. Yeah. That's and, too... and it's probably improving their mood. <laughs> Damn them. <laughs> yeah. So a question that's slipping my mind, but it'll come back to me. In the meantime, we still need to uh, cover. We've got two more traits. Agreeability and openness. Correct? That's right. Yeah. Oh, I, that just came back to me. Well, um, should we do it? Sure. Why not? Is there, because it seems like a lot of these traits um, you, you, you can see, uh, pros and cons to being one way or another, uh, in various situations. Right. What about neuroticism? Is there any, uh, yeah, that's a really good question because yeah, there's a sort of general debate among people who study personality and especially links between personality and risks for different forms of, uh, of mental disorder, mental health problems. 
Um, and the debate is about how much uh, how much is there what's called bipolarity, which means that there might be risks from being high in a trait, but there also might be risks in being low. And for a lot of the traits, you can find risks at both ends, right? So people who are um, low in conscientiousness are more at risk for a lot of different mental health problems, uh, depression, uh, depression, anxiety, substance use problems, um, all, all kinds of, you know, impulsivity. Not talking about law, anyone in particular. Yeah, law breaking. <laughs> you know, all kinds of problems. But people who are high in conscientiousness, who are really high, and especially in the uh, orderliness component of conscientiousness, are actually more at risk for compulsive problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like, you know, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, um, things just related to like rigid perfectionism and just getting themselves in trouble basically <laughs> by being overly uh, yeah. conscientious. I do not have to worry uh, about that. But it's been actually very difficult to find problems associated with being uh, low in neuroticism. Hmm. Um, and I think the maybe the closest that that we've come is uh, if you get people who have uh, what's described as psychopathy, where they are extremely callous, fearless, they're likely to hurt other people, like prison populations are disproportionately represented by people who can be diagnosed as uh, psychopaths, they probably have low levels of neuroticism, at least the component that's about being anxiety, anxious or, or fearful. They often have bad tempers, right? So they've got at least that one component of neuroticism, but um, so I guess one problem about being, but too they f- feel great about themselves. <laughs> yeah, typically they do. I mean, they might not wow. be happy about the fact that they're in jail, but it's like, that's other people's fault. <laughs> right. Right. Huh. Yeah. So, and I think, you know, what you just said there actually highlights, I think another risk of being super low in neuroticism, even if it's not necessarily associated with something that's recognized as a mental disorder. And that is that you may be more prone to self-deception. So when we talk mm. about self-deception, we're basically talking about the fact that uh, well, everybody is prone to this to some extent, right? It's like it's annoying to acknowledge when you're wrong. <laughs> you've got something planned. You've got some way you think about the world. You encounter something that gives you a little sign like, hey, maybe that's not quite going to work the way you thought it was, or maybe that doesn't mean quite what you thought it did. And wouldn't it just be nice if you could just ignore that and just carry on with things the way you were going before uh, and just assume it'll all work out? Well, guess what? People do that all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's how we've thought about what it means to be self-deceptive, right? It's basically voluntarily uh, refusing to explore some evidence that indicates that you might be wrong about something, that you might Mm -hmm. be in, in error. And there are um, measures that have been developed to try to get at people's tendency toward self-deception. And one of the one of the best ones basically just assesses people's tendency to be overconfident. Uh, there are items like, I always know why I like things. It's like, I'm always a safe driver even when I'm exceeding the speed limit. It's just, you know, people. some people are just like that, right? They're arrogant. They always think they're right. Yeah. Um, well, so that's a form of... Uh, self-deception in the sense of you're going to ignore evidence when you might be wrong, um, but it's also associated with low levels of neuroticism. So mm. people like that don't experience a lot of uh, ang- anxiety or depression. or And so you can say, well, there's actually been a debate among psychologists. Does that indicate that self-deception might actually be beneficial for people? Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that I think about this is that, yeah, there might be some sort of short-term benefits for being good at ignoring signs that you might be wrong. I mean, because there are people who are super neurotic who are exactly the opposite, right? Every little thing makes them think like, oh, I screwed that up. Oh, that's not going to work. Oh, I, you know, 
uh, oh, I'm so sorry, right? Uh, you know, people who are just constantly apologizing for themselves to others and to themselves and just think like they can never do anything right. That's sort of the opposite. That's being too sensitive to possible errors. But if you're totally insensitive to error, well, then how are you going to learn, right? How are you going to correct your behavior when you make a mistake? Mm. And so there's evidence that people who are high in this self-deceptive tendency, um, they make a good first impression on people uh, and they make a really lousy longer term impression because at first they seem really confident, they're glib, they don't, you know, they don't have a lot of self-doubt. They'll just tackle things, get into things. It'll be, you know, it'll be great. They're very confident. But then you start to realize that they, they'll never admit that they're wrong. The problems are always other people's problems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I think that that's probably one of the drawbacks to being really low in neuroticism makes you more prone to that kind of tendency. I feel like I want a taste of that sometimes because it does seem like confidence gets you, gets you so far. It seems <laughs> right. like like any CEO or whatever can just, a lot of them just earn their position just through sheer will of confidence right, of just right. sounding like they know what they're talking right. about. Well, there's a reason that uh, cocaine and alcohol are popular. Right? <laughs> yeah. You've got one, the alcohol takes away the anxiety and the uncertainty and the cocaine ramps up the uh, confidence and the, yes. the, you know, go get it kind of, uh, peanut butter and fresh. jelly. Yeah. Right. Perfect combination. <laughs> they, were, they were made for one another. Yeah. Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 8989 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 8989. Enjoy. Hey guys, Randy and Jason here. And whether you're working from home or working on your fitness, you want what you're listening to to be what you're listening to. Not yeah, you don't want to catch like glimpses and uh, little snippets of like what snippets? other you know tidbits of what your kids are listening to or anyone else. Everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds. But before you go drop in hundreds of bucks on a pair, you need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. They are amazing. I've yes. got my Raycon earbuds. They so cancel out everything. Raycon earbuds start for about a half price of the other ones. Premium wireless earbuds on the market and they sound just as amazing as the top uh, audio brands you know. The newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, are their best ones yet. Jay, I love these uh, so much. I'm using it nonstop, right? Six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth playing, more bass, more compact design, gives you a nice noise-isolating fit. I like that if you have one of them in, you can just hear use one of them for They're a stylish and discreet. I love these so much. Now's the time to get a pair of the latest and the greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order by Raycon.com. 
uh, slash Starburns. That's buy, B-U-Y, Raycon.com, R-A-Y-C-O-N.com, slash Starburns for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. I love these earbuds so much. I know you do too. I'm all about them, man. They're they're my reach. You know what you feel when you reach for them and that's and you the thing you reach them. for and that's my hike. Those are my hike earbuds. Those are my hike. walking earbuds. Buy, B-U-Y, R-A-Y-C-O-N.com, slash Starburns for 15% off. Boy, I am... I will say I'm quite an oddball in this category as you're describing this because I'm riddled with insecurities. I I constantly uh, like just on the, on the way here. I even caught myself like cursing at myself, like just walking into a gas <laughs> you station, idiot. like thinking of something <laughs> that I did eight yeah. years ago or something like that. And uh, it's some nothing thing, by the way. Not not even like some uh, some big fault. Of it. Just yeah, like, I'm surprised that you're only average in neuroticism, given this description. But at the same time, I'm like everyone should listen to what I have to say. Right, I'm going. Right. I'm going to pursue for a living, uh, standing in front of people, thinking my ideas are more important than other people's. So it's a strange. Yep, you're an odd fellow. <laughs> then most stand-ups probably are a lot. Uh, yeah. Huh. Uh, I mean, and one thing that, that that I think is important to add into the mix here is that uh, you are undoubtedly extremely high in one of the other traits we haven't mentioned yet, which is openness to experience, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, I'm, um, I got openness for days. Right. And that's actually really important relative to what you're saying, because uh, I think there are uh, sort of two different kinds of confidence. Um, and one is about uh you know, what you can do in a kind of like uh, active, I don't know, social status kind of way, you know, like the CEO that you're describing or the, you know, the serious athlete or, you know, anybody who's basically got one of these kind of extroverted pursuits, right, where they go out there and they go get them. Um, But there is also a certain kind of uh, confidence and approach tendency that's associated with being high in openness. And that's a more kind of uh, cognitive exploratory tendency. Um, So uh, one of the things that's important to understand about openness is that um, openness to experience suggests one side of that trait, which is basically about being really open to perceiving new things and experiencing new things and having this kind of intense engagement with the sensory world and like, you know, the artistic world and creativity and that kind of stuff. Um, but that label leaves out the other side of the trait, which is intellectual, right? So there was actually a long debate in personality psychology about whether to call the trait openness or to call it intellect. Mm. Uh, and it turns out basically that you need both of those things to really fully capture what that dimension of personality is all about. Um, And the intellectual side is about being engaged with the world of ideas, with abstract information, uh, you know, with thinking and reasoning about things. Um, And on average, that goes along with the other tendencies related to openness, like about um, being into aesthetic experience and being fantasy prone and all these things. Um, But they're separable, right? Because that's another important thing about personality traits in general is that you can break them down into smaller subcomponents, sub traits, right? So like we were talking about different components of neuroticism, like you might find somebody who's really anxious and depressive, but they never get mad about things, right? So even though on average, those different negative emotions tend to appear in the same people, you can certainly find people who deviate from that so that they've got some, they've got high levels of some parts of neuroticism, but low levels of others. And same thing goes for all the traits. So you can have somebody who is really super high in openness, 
uh, but low in intellect. And they tend to be like the sort of like, you know, stereotypical new age flaky, mm -hmm. like, oh, I've got this new crystal that's really going to align all my chakras, <laughs> right? You know, because they're into these kind of like patterns I, I, and ideas, but they're not really applying a kind of yeah. intellectual rigor to I, the situation. I, you we know? just defended a few listeners. <laughs> <But> <laughs> well, I don't mind. No, I, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, no, no, but, you know, they should, they, they should take heart no. because there's a place for these kind of exploratory ideas because if everybody only stuck with the ideas that made sense right now then we'd never learn anything new right right right. so you basically have to be willing to accept uh that you're going to get some things wrong in order to potentially occasionally get some really new insight uh yeah. that that's right 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 um, but yeah, anyway fucking yeah. crystals though fucking honestly. crystals <laughs> <laughs> honestly. Uh, well, but, you know it's because crystals. everything's made of energy man <laughs> <laughs> you you would think I've done enough psychedelics to maybe be like, oh, listen to Chris, some crystal talk. I can't, I can't take yeah, it. Well, I, I I have no time for until it until you actually hear the crystals talk. <laughs> <laughs> you're just not going to have enough respect for them. I know, uh, apparently not. So we've uh, we still have agreeability. Yeah, well, uh, we usually say agreeableness. Oh, agreeableness. I don't know why. Some people are prone to saying agreeability. Hmm. I, I know this one old personality psychologist who sort of got on board even before the Big Five was a thing. Um, and he's got his own system, so he doesn't really like the Big Five that much. But whenever we talk about it, he talks about agreeability. And I don't know hmm. what, where that comes from because the word that most psychologists use is agreeableness. agreeableness. Now, i got to retrain myself to yeah. say well, agreeableness. It doesn't really matter. It probably means the same thing, yeah. right? Um, and it's a, it's kind of a, an unfortunate label anyway, because it's not just about the tendency to agree with other people. Um, it's really about all the different ways in which people can either be, uh, cooperative and helpful and altruistic with other people, uh, or they can be selfish and exploitative and belligerent and rude and all the ways in which people, you know, undermine other people in pursuit of their own aims. So people who are high in agreeableness are more likely to be willing to compromise and to agree to do things that other people want to do, um, but they don't necessarily agree to everything. So uh, one interesting finding is that people who are higher in agreeableness are actually less likely to agree to have an affair, to cheat on uh, to cheat on their romantic partner. Hmm. So somebody is propositioning them. They don't just agree to everything. They're actually less likely to agree to that because they're really focused on sort of maintaining social harmony and maintaining like social obligations. Um, so they, it's not that they can't stand up for themselves entirely, although it's a, you know, it's a risk. If you're super agreeable, you may end up always putting other people's needs ahead of your own. Um, but you know, something calling it something like, altruism would probably make more sense than agreeableness my mother is like pathologically agreeable yeah like right constantly gets, you find gets people who can never do anything for themselves because twice the yeah. number of hours yeah. that she was supposed to work at work and then gets home and starts like wrapping gifts and things like that for people to give to people for whatever uh reason <laughs> she's the nicest person you'll ever meet but just it's 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 like a condition. Right, like it is. can't stop. But the interesting thing is we don't actually recognize that as a mental illness, right. <laughs> typically. Right. The closest that you get in sort of a, a official uh, diagnoses of mental illness is something like dependent personality disorder. Hmm. Um, but even that tends to be uh, just as strongly or maybe even more strongly associated with something more like neuroticism, uh, where people who just like don't have the confidence to feel like they can do things for themselves. Hmm. 
So how do you study these things uh, from a neurobiological standpoint? Uh, well, typically what I do is I put people in a brain scanner. So we use uh, magnetic resonance imaging, that's MRI, like if you've ever, you know, blown out your knee or something, you had to go in for an MRI scan in the doctor. Um, you can scan people's brains with that same technology. And it is based on magnetic fields uh, so that it is, uh, it's non-invasive, right? As far as we know, uh, and we've been doing this for, uh, well, I haven't, but uh, the scientific community in general has been doing this for, oh, I don't know, like 30 years now. Um, and there has never been any indication that there is any long lasting effects of getting an MRI scan. What if you go in wearing your crystal though? Uh, it depends if it's a, a ferrous crystal or not. <laughs> if it's magnetic, then you might be in trouble. <laughs> so we actually, you have to actually screen people very carefully to make sure that they don't have bits of metal in their bodies uh, when you put them in an MRI scan. So for example, uh, one potential problem is uh, people who have ever done uh, work with metal, like metal work, because you might end up uh, with a little tiny fleck of, uh, of metal in your eye that is like so tiny that you oh could never even detect it. But if you go into the MRI scanner, that could then like be ripped, oh ripped through your God. eyeball. Yeah. That is horrifying. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> oh, wow. Right? Um, and you don't, you know, you can't go in there wearing like, let's say, an underwire bra because that metal in that is likely to create a, a circuit that heats up because of the ma incredibly strong magnetic fields. You can get like a third degree burn from your bra wire. Oh, so wow. You have to, there are, there are precautions that you so have much. to take. Yes, there are precautions that you have to take for MRI. But for as long as people take those precautions, then it is an extremely safe uh, scanning technology. It's not like getting an x-ray, right? We get x-rays all the time at the dentist, but that's, you know, bombarding yourself with radiation. Um, that is not really very good for you. Mm -hmm. um, there are uh, forms of brain scanning called PET scans that actually involve injecting people with radioactive material. Mm -hmm. um, and that has, that has, right, that's, I mean, it's like mad science going on here, right? Uh, Dr. Frankenstein. But what the reason that you would do that is that you can uh, create a substance that, uh, a chemical that binds to a specific, uh, a specific brain receptor, for example. Like, let's say I want to know uh, how much, uh, how many dopamine receptors you have or how much density you have of dopamine receptors in different parts of your brain. Um, I can inject you with this substance that then goes and binds to the dopamine receptors. And then because it's ever so slightly radioactive, it's going to be emitting a signal. I can put you in a PET scanner, uh, you know, scan you for 20 minutes, and then I can see basically where in your brain that signal is coming from. Um, but that is invasive because you're injecting somebody with yeah. a radioactive material. And so you're actually only allowed to participate in something like two PET studies in your lifetime. <laughs> they will, ask, you know, they'll ask you, they'll look at your records. Huh. If, you, if you want it, you can make a bunch of money because, you know, they'll pay handsomely for it. But um, the beauty of MRI is there are people who have been scanned uh, hundreds of times with no apparent effects whatsoever, hmm. because it's all, all it's doing essentially is using magnetic fields to uh, register the properties of different types of tissue in the body. Hmm. 
I did an MRI once. I haven't been the same since. <laughs> sure, blame it on the MRI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what were you doing the night before? <laughs> that's, that's what I'm going to do is uh, blame most of my problems on a minimally invasive MRI or non-invasive, I guess. Um, so, so you stick people in MRI and then... I, I guess I don't uh, I don't quite understand how you go from M- uh, giving someone an MRI to understanding a personality. Yeah, good point. Um, so there are two kinds of information you can get out of, about people's brains from an MRI scan. Um, you can look at brain structure. Uh, so every different type of tissue has a different kind of magnetic signature. And so you can get really clear and high resolution images of, you know, the the gray matter in the brain, the white matter separating it out from the skull and from different types of tissue. And then uh, the other thing that you can do is to actually look at how the brain is functioning in real time. That's sort of the really crazy and uh, exciting part of that technology. Uh, That's known as functional MRI, fMRI. And that takes advantage of the fact that uh, your brain uses a lot of energy. So um, I don't remember the exact proportion right now, but your brain uses a really disproportionate amount of the body's em- energy given its size. I want to say 20% or something. Uh, 20% like was what was in my head too. So yeah. maybe that's right. <laughs> yeah. I, that's definitely, at least in pop science books that I've yeah. read, I, I've heard that number a lot. Yeah, well, it's a, you know at least 20% and it's less than 20% of your body size or mass. Mm-hmm. Um, so, right. So the brain is an expensive organ and all that information processing, all those neurons firing, uh, like crazy, that's taking a lot of energy. Um, and so that means that energy has to be delivered and how is energy delivered? It's delivered through the blood, right? So you've got blood flow to parts of the brain that are more active. And so it turns out that, uh, that blood and especially oxygenated blood, red, uh, red blood cells, uh, have a particular magnetic signal that is totally different when oxygen is bound to those red blood cells versus when it's not. Uh, and that means that you can track where blood is flowing at any given time in the brain. And so what we know basically is that uh, parts of the brain that are more active at any given time are going to have more blood flow go- going to them. And we can see that with an fMRI scan. So we can give somebody a task, right? We have people lying in the MRI scanner. Of course, they have to be very still and not move their heads. Um, but they can move their eyes and we can give them a little button box like a video game controller to, to press with their hands. And we can have a, a, a computer screen basically mounted above their head so that they can see it. And then they can look at pictures or they can make decisions by pressing the buttons. Uh, they can play little games. Almost anything that you can do, anything that you could do on a computer with, you know, two, four buttons, let's say, you can do in uh, an MRI scan. So that means that we can actually see what parts of people's brains are active when they're engaged in these different tasks. And then the next step, because there are a lot of neuroscientists who are just trying to figure out how the brain works in general. Right? So they'll give people a bunch of different tasks and compare what the brain is doing when it's doing one task versus another task versus just resting. Um, what makes my work different is that I'm not interested just in what the brain does in general. I want to know how different brains work differently. So one thing that means is we usually need larger groups of people that we're going to test because we want to we want to get a bunch of people with a whole range of different personality traits. Um, and then we look and see like, okay, let's say you're looking at 
uh, images, uh, threatening images. Well, one thing you might expect is that people who are high in neuroticism, their brains are going to be more reactive uh, mm, to those threatening images than somebody who's low in neuroticism. Mm. And sure enough, we can actually see that parts of the brain that are involved in threat processing, like the amygdala, uh, are likely to be more active when somebody high in neuroticism is in a threatening situation uh, than when somebody who's low in neuroticism is in a threatening situation. Because <laughs> partly for that person low in neuroticism, they don't really think it's threatening. It's like, mm. oh, yeah, you're showing me some grisly pictures of like mutilated bodies. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> right? mm. Whereas the uh, you know, highly neurotic person is freaking out about that. Mm. So what, what are uh, some of the other primes for some of the other personality traits? Well, uh, we can do like difficult cognitive tasks, like working memory tasks. Uh, so that would be, for example, where I show you a series of words or a series of pictures. Um, and you have to tell me whether the one that you're seeing right now is the same as the one that you saw three previously. Right. And then you see another one and you have to update the list that's in your head and you're trying desperately to keep those last three in your mind. And then another one comes along and you have to drop the first one and pick up the last one and compare that one to the one that you're seeing now. It's a brutal task. It's no fun. Um, but it happens to be really predictive of people's intelligence and also their that intellect uh, component of openness. Like or a, how much the time they spent on lumosity. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, so one interesting finding from the last like 20 or 30 years is that uh, playing certain kinds of video games actually does seem to increase people's uh, spatial abilities of certain kinds. Oh, really? Yeah. I was saying that. Half yeah. kidding. And, yeah. No, it's uh, uh, actually... There might be something to that. Hmm. Of course, then what's happened is that there's this huge so-called brain training industry uh, where everybody's trying to make a buck right. by telling you that, oh, if you play their video game, you're going to make yourself smarter. Uh, well, I hate to uh, to break it to your listeners, but so far there's no evidence that that works. But you'll be better at that video but game. But you will be better at that <laughs> video game, right? So that's the what's been discovered with those with those studies and half the time people don't do studies, they just create a product and then try to sell it to you. But when people have actually studied it rigorously, what appears to be the case is that there is some gain in skills for uh, abilities that are quite similar to the, to the thing that you're training on. Um, but you, you don't get what's called far transfer. You get near transfer. In other words, you get, you get better at things that are very similar to the thing that you're training on, which is perhaps not that surprising. Um, but you don't get better at less related problems where you would like it if your you know, intelligence could be boosted and your mm. problem solving ability could be boosted. I was doing this game because I, I got the, I fell for it and did the Lumosity thing mm -hmm. when it came out like six years ago yep. or something like that. Uh, I meant well. Um, <laughs> and and uh, I, I was trying to do the game because I'm really bad with names and there's some sort of game that uh, like you're a waiter and trying to remember people's <laughs> names and orders and that sort of thing. And I, I was genuinely just like, this is a per part of myself I would like to improve on. And I didn't notice any difference at all in real yeah. life situations. Well, I'm afraid that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, anyway, so you have, you give people these difficult cognitive tasks and yeah. what are you measuring there? Openness? Yeah, that's related to openness. Well, specifically the intellect part of openness and also to, uh, intelligence. We use IQ tests, mm -hmm. which, you know, despite this, uh, debate in the kind of wider world about do IQ tests mean anything? Well, you know, unfortunately, psych, well, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, but, uh, psychologists know that IQ tests are among the best assessment tools that we have. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, extremely reliable. They're not perfect because no psychological assessment is perfect. 
Um, but they are actually very good at measuring people's general ability to solve problems by thinking and reasoning. Um, and that's a very useful skill to have. And, uh, I mean, people should be excited because there's the Flynn effect of, of the right. IQ yep. inching upwards through the, the generations. The Flynn effect is fascinating. Uh, in The Flynn effect is that in developed countries, uh, there has been an increase every in every country where IQ has been measured – uh, that is a you know sort of industrialized developing country. Uh, there has been an increase over generations in IQ regularly. Every generation IQ goes up. Uh, and the funny thing is it took a long time to figure that out because uh, IQ is always set so that the score has an average of 100 in the it's population. Great. You're graded on a curve. You're always you're graded on a curve and it's and it's reset every few years to make sure that it stays on the same curve so that the mean is 100 and the standard deviation is 15. But James Flynn, for whom the Flynn effect is named, had the clever idea of going back to the raw test scores, mm-hmm. right? To look at it before it gets transformed into an IQ score when it's just a question of how many of these questions did you get right? Um, and what he found was that looking at some uh, countries that had records of IQ testing over long periods of time was that people were getting more and more questions right as time went by. Hmm. Um, but, you know, interestingly, that the Flynn effect seems to have stopped in some countries and is maybe even going in reverse. Right. Where, really? Yeah, uh, in we may be even starting to see a decline in. Oh, well, I thought I was. IQ. I thought I was uh, go, uh, giving people a little bit of silver lining for the uh, anti IQ yeah, well, people. I mean, but. if if you don't like it tough, you know that doesn't make it go away. People <laughs> right. people differ in their intelligence. Right. Yeah. Hmm. So uh, so you you do the the primings, but with the you give people these cognitive tests, and so you're basically measuring where. Uh, complicated cognitive tasks are taking place in the brain? Yeah, what are the brain networks? Uh, that's one thing that's come out in neuroscience in the last, let's say, 20 years, that we've we've moved from a kind of modular way of thinking about how the brain functions, where we think like, oh, what section of the brain does this task happen in, to realizing that pretty much all tasks require complex networks of different brain regions. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not just focusing on a particular region, we're focusing on the way different regions of the brain actually interact to get things done. Um, and some of the most interesting work going on now, I think, is actually studying uh, what are the different networks in the brain that are sort of consistently interacting with each other to carry out these different types of tasks. Uh, and some of, the, some of the work that's been going on in my lab in recent years has been trying to identify different brain networks that are associated with different personality traits. Hmm. Um, so for example, we just published a paper last year uh, where I think we have identified a brain network that's associated with conscientiousness. Uh, conscientiousness has been really interesting because it's very predictive of uh people's outcomes in the real world. Um, So after IQ, it's the best predictor of things like academic success and uh, job performance. I mean, unless you have an asinine career, like becoming a comedian or something. Yeah, then it doesn't matter. (laughs) Life can be very, very difficult for for a person that's low in conscience. I mean, it ruins my relationships. All right, well, we don't need to get into uh, a therapy session here. (laughs) I I mean, just like being a messy person in general, just, you know, you you can't do th- you don't crazy. do things on time. You don't get things done. Right. You don't uh, do things you said you were going to do. There are all kinds of problems to having low conscientiousness. Uh, and in fact, uh, 
ADHD and especially, especially the, um, the attention deficit part of it, not so much mm. the hyperactivity part of it. Uh, but that is essentially equivalent to like pathologically low conscientiousness. Son of a bitch. Yeah. Let's explain it. See, yeah. you said this wasn't going to be a therapy session. Well, sorry. Now you're, uh, <laughs> there, like we're we going are. that direction. <laughs> <laughs> well, now yeah. let me ask you. So you're, you're talking about these different, um, uh, the, these different networks that are predictive of, uh, uh, of levels of conscientiousness, is it is it the case that someone low in conscientiousness, asking for a friend, is uh, is showing less activation in a network, or is there like a different network of activation taking place for a different trait? Do you understand what I'm trying to ask? Um, like, is it like a dimmer level of activation of the exact same network or is it a completely different network for a different level of probably a little bit of both. Okay. Uh, it would be very strange if it was a totally different network, right? So one of the ways that I think about personality traits is that the reason we have these broad personality dimensions that, uh, that we can use to assess people in different cultures at different times in history. Like, for example, I'm sure there were more or less conscientious cavemen, right? It's like, you know, like Zog said he would get those berries and he didn't bring any of the berries, right? Right. You know, uh, I'm sure that we could talk about like more or less argumentative cavemen, more or less argu- conscientious cavemen, whatever. Um, there, I think the reason that that is, is that there are certain evolved mechanisms in the human brain that just allow us to carry out the kinds of things that we need to do. And uh, everyone with a relatively normal, intact human brain has those mechanisms. But personality variation comes in because uh, people have different functional levels of the same mechanisms. I see. Right? It's like, so neuroticism, okay? It's associated to the possibility of detecting and responding to threat. Uh, so something threatening happens and you've got to react to it in some kind of defensive way to make sure that you don't end up dead or you don't end up, you know, losing every, all the things that you care about or whatever. Um, and some people have really, really sensitive threat detectors and they just feel like things are going wrong at every moment. They're never satisfied. Those are people who are really high in neuroticism. Um, some people have really low levels, but even people who are really low in neuroticism, they can usually get worried about things if something really bad is about to happen, right? Like if they never get worried about anything, then, you know, like a lot of psychopaths, they wind up dead in various accidents or in prison because they just were not worried at all about the consequences of their actions. Um, so the basic idea is that everybody's got this threat detection mechanism and it's just, uh, it's set at different levels of sensitivity for different people. Hmm. And so that suggests that, you know, if we can identify the network in the brain that is really involved in detecting and launching emotional responses to threat, then that's probably the network that's responsible for neuroticism in everybody. And it's going to be more active in people who are high in neuroticism and less active in people who are low. Hmm. Um, But there is also a possibility of slight differences in the way that whole network is connected. Like there might just be a weaker connection, for example, between the systems that, uh, let's say, detect threat emotionally and the ones that do emotion regulation and, you know, tell you that everything's okay, you're just being irrational, right? So there's actually a fair amount of research showing that people who are high in neuroticism have less of a connection between their amygdala and their prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is basically doing things at a more abstract level like, 
okay, you can think about this a different way. It's not the end of the world just because what you, you know, this didn't happen the way you wanted it to right now. We can do this other thing or, you know, we can reframe it. There are all these processes that are described by psychologists as emotion regulation, uh, which really seems to depend on high level processes in the prefrontal cortex being able to inhibit or change or modulate processes in these low level emotional centers. Um, and so, you know, it's a combination of the network works differently and the network might actually be slightly physically different in its structure uh, that causes different personality traits. Hmm. Is there a sense of, of flexibility in terms of, so say you're a, a highly neurotic person and, and you have this very sensitive threat detection and we live in this modern world that is really uh pretty safe compared to the one that we evolved in and and probably this absence of actual threats has has this detection being sensitized because uh, it's going why isn't any threat being detected so it's becoming more and more sensitive until you're detecting a threat um perhaps uh, speculating right because you know it could desensitize right if you never detect a threat you might say well we can just go to sleep now <laughs> oh yeah that system right so but I, I but think- what what happens when my question is like what happens then when like shit hits the fan for someone like life gets very real you got this highly neurotic person yeah. fretting about like uh, uh, being on time for their pedicure or something like that. <laughs> right. And then all of a sudden you have like a family member fall ill or, or some, you know, something very serious. Well, happens. I mean, sadly, we know that neuroticism is the major risk factor for mental illness. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, people who are high in neuroticism are less likely to be resilient to serious stressors. Hmm. Uh, and they're more likely to have, uh, you know, their functioning breakdown in various ways. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's uh, the unfortunate part about neuroticism. It's sort of uh, the most general risk factor that we know of for various mental health problems. Hmm. <laughs> I do wonder why we have, like, how such high neuroticism evolved. In the Are these just like the canaries of, of the world of the people that, <laughs> yeah. that start chirping when there's any sign of danger? Around? Right. So that, I mean, what you're asking is they're implicitly... Um, you know, implicitly, there's an evolutionary question there, which is like, why would evolution actually allow such levels of neuroticism to persist? Like, yeah. why isn't it just a real detriment to to fitness? You know, how do those people even survive and reproduce? Well, I mean, as you pointed out, in our ancestral environments, evolutionarily, presumably, there were more real physical threats around. Uh, so being cautious in that way might actually have been good for people, mm-hmm. uh, especially when they were in dangerous circumstances. There's some fascinating research that's been done with other species, like species of fish, for example, um, where, you know, if they live and die relatively quickly, we've got a short generation length. We can actually study evolution in mm-hmm. other species in the lab. Um, and what's been demonstrated is that you do see personality differences in other species, like in fish, for example, you get, uh, bold fish and timid fish. Hmm. Um, and so they've taken, uh, they've taken these, you know, species of small fish that are preyed upon by a larger fish. Um, and what they found is that if you have an environment that has uh, a lot of predators in it, then the timid fish actually survive and reproduce more. So you're actually selecting for that kind of timidity and the bold fish get chomped. Um, but then if you put those same 
species of fish in an environment that has very few predators, uh, the bold fish do better. They reproduce more. They get more of their resources. They go out and explore things and right. end up doing better than the timid fish. Mm-hmm. So one possible explanation for why we have this you know, persistence of a range of different types of personality, even for something that seems as unfortunate as high neuroticism, uh, is just that in different environments, different people thrive. Uh, and so there's been enough, you know, difference over time to maintain that kind of variation in the population. Um, I also think it's important with neuroticism that, uh, you know, we do know that it's not all genetic, right? The environment also influences people's personality. And just as I was talking about how when people go through therapy, typically their neuroticism reduces. I think there's a way in which neuroticism is sort of like the final common pathway for mental health problems. So no matter exactly what kind of problem that you're having, if it's making your life dysfunctional and fall apart in various ways, it's probably going to be boosting your levels of neuroticism because you're going to be experiencing more and more negative emotions as things just aren't working, as you're not able to pursue the goals that you're trying to pursue or to, uh, you know, just meet the basic human needs that you have. The more that goes wrong, the more anxious and depressed you're likely to feel. So uh, partly I think it's related to just the fact that, you know, unfortunately there are always going to be some people whose lives get screwed up because of external circumstances or because of, you know, whatever uh, just sort of risk factors or problems they have in their own personality. And that's likely then to end up leading to higher neuroticism for them. Hmm. So there's no advantage to that, right? It's just like the outcome when bad things start to happen. What about uh, being bipolar? What's uh, oh yeah? What's happening there? Uh, that's a that's a fascinating uh, sort of set of problems. Um, so uh, bipolar disorder uh, and especially the sort of manic component of that. That's bipolar is the only diagnosis that's associated with high levels of both extroversion and openness. Hmm. So. Uh, what you have in bipolar is basically uh, you have this really hyperactive tendency toward exploratory behavior. You've got the kind of behavioral exploration that goes along with extroversion, um, this kind of, you know, like overconfidence and manic pursuit of goals. And then you've got this sort of like crazy racing thoughts and coming up with all these brilliant ideas and this tendency toward grandiosity. Um, and uh, and the, I think the interesting thing about that is no, we don't understand exactly why it is that there tends to be this uh, cyclical nature to it. It's like you can see people who are in a manic phase and they are so uh, sort of overconfident and hyper exploratory that they're undermining their their own stability. Right. They're, uh, you know, they're spending way more money than they have they're engaging in like all kinds of dangerous promiscuous sexual behavior they're hopping on a plane and flying to somewhere they can't afford they don't know what they're doing but they've got some brilliant plan right Um, so they get into trouble that way but then there's also this tendency for it to crash right and then to end up in uh, in periods of depression Um, and it probably has to do with the role of dopamine because dopamine is the neurotransmitter that's responsible for that kind of exploratory tendency right so where we know that when people are in a manic ex, uh, a manic episode, they basically have hyperactive dopamine function. Hmm. Um, and it's almost as if, uh, or maybe it literally is as if that kind of dopamine activity can't be sustained. It burns itself out. Um, because when you have, uh, when you have low levels of dopamine and dopamine is not functioning, not being responsive, then the problem is what you have is hopelessness, right? So there's a way in which dopamine is like the neural signal for hope. Because it means like it's worth doing this. It's worth pursuing this. Something good might happen. If you give people uh, like a game to play where they are essentially gambling, right? And, and you can say, well, uh, would you take this option if 
and it's not just that you have to make a decision, but you actually have to work. Let's say it's like you have to press this button 100 times in the next 30 seconds or you don't get to make this option. So that gives you a sense of how much people are willing to work in order to take a chance on something. Well, it turns out that when uh, people, when you increase people's level of dopamine, they become more and more willing to work even for low probability rewards. So what dopamine is doing basically, it's like giving you that hope that even though you might know that it's relatively improbable, it's worth putting in a bunch of effort for in order to try to get it. Hmm. Uh, so people talk about dopamine as essentially overcoming the cost of effort because right? effort itself is costly right we it uses energy we en energy is a limited resource our bodies are designed to conserve energy right and to try to use it wisely uh the more dopamine you have the less wisely you're likely to use it and so when those levels get too high they can cause people to engage in really sort of risky stupid behavior and that's essentially what mania is Oh, I see. But then at the same time, when dopamine gets too low, then it's like nothing is worth doing, mm -hmm. right? There's no point. There's no energy. There's no everything costs too much. Getting out of bed costs too much, right? And so there seems to be this way in which for, for people who have these bipolar problems, the dopamine system is unstable in this way where it becomes sort of hyperactive and then becomes severely hypoactive where it's just, you know, practically inactivated. Hmm. Oh man, I I feel like we could keep talking forever, but we're at the uh, uh, we're coming to the end. I have my guests each week plug a nonprofit of their choice, charity. Did you have one in mind? Yeah, no, I do. Um, that's a that's a really nice thing to do, and this is a little bit local, I guess. So if you have any listeners in Minnesota, or just anybody who wants to uh, support people in a, in an urban environment, regardless of where you are. There's an organization called the Twin Cities Agricultural Land Trust. Uh, and what they're trying to do basically is to get better access to agricultural... It's Twin Cities Community Agricultural Land Trust. Yes, that's right. Sorry. Twin Cities Community Agricultural Land Trust. T-C-A-L-T. T-Cult. Yeah. Um, and what they're trying to do is to get access to agricultural land. And that doesn't have to be like large scale farming. That could be just gardening, people growing produce uh, for their families, for their community, uh, to sell in farmers markets. Uh, there are a lot of people who are uh, less well off uh, in urban areas who can really benefit and who want to have access to that kind of uh, capacity to, to grow food. Um, and uh, the T-Cult is an organization that is basically trying to establish access to land for those people. Hmm. That is fantastic. You are a fantastic guest. I'm, I'm happy that I got a hold of you last minute. I had zero prep time, completely winged it, and I knew it, it would all be okay. This is a terrific conversation. So thanks, Colin. For yeah, well, me. I'm glad that you uh, spontaneously <laughs> set this up. It was yeah, fun. and thank you listeners for being such wonderful, inquisitive people. We'll talk with you next week. Next week on the podcast, I'm in Pittsburgh talking with Morgan Worthlin. We're talking about the evolution of complex behaviors and the synthesis of comparative genomics and experimental neurobiology. All right, that sounds a little complicated, doesn't it? Just a tad, maybe. Well, we're going to be talking about bird songs and how they relate to human vocalizations. Really cool episode. Make sure and check it out. Thanks again for checking out Psychonautics, taking the time to write the reviews. 
Guys, I could not stress this enough. That little bit of time out of your day. We live in this world now where you got to review every gosh darn thing and everyone wants a review from you. And uh, you don't have time to write a review for everything. You got to be selective. And uh, I, I hope that uh, that you enjoy this podcast so much that that you're like, yeah, I'm going to take that extra minute or two and write a review to check out uh, and check out Shane's documentary Psychonautics that will help bump everything up it'll get recommended to more people and I'll get to make more documentaries and do similar things like this in the future this is all you know trying to make education entertaining that's my mission it's not the easiest thing that I've ever done in my life uh, making it entertaining is is one thing as it, it has its own set of challenges but getting people interested getting the word out there building a fan base getting people out to shows getting people to listen to this podcast to watch the documentary that is so such a huge piece and many pieces of this infinite infinite infinitely complex puzzle that I really, really need all the help that I can do. And that's as someone who is uh, a believer in what I'm doing, um, that, that's something that, that you can do, something that you have control over is to spread the word a little bit, write a review, and man, you're sitting there, you, you didn't, you've never written a review for anything before, and you're just such a big Here We Are podcast fan, a Shane Moss fan, that you're like, what the heck? I'm gonna get out there, I'm gonna write multiple reviews. I'm gonna write a review for the Psychonautics documentary on iTunes, on Amazon. I'm gonna write a review for the Here We Are podcast. Maybe even write a review for one of the old albums while I'm at it, while I'm just on this crazy reviewing streak. Maybe that's what you're gonna do tonight. Maybe you're gonna do it right now. I can see you doing it. I believe in you. That's gonna help me out so much, so thank you in advance for reviewing everything that I've ever done in a positive way and helping spread the word. You guys are awesome. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites.
Thank you, Editor Jimmy Martin, for making the Here We Are podcast sound terrific. And thank you to the band Rebreather for the wonderful outro music.